Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 38 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am so honored to be joined by perhaps the greatest living costume designer for film, Sandy Powell. Powell is a 12-time Oscar nominee in the category of Best Costume Design, and she has three wins to her name for Shakespeare in Love, for The Aviator, and for The Young Victoria. Only four costume designers in history have more. Edith Head won eight but at a time when she got credit for the work of her entire department. The same is true for Irene Sheriff, who won five, and Charles Lemaire, who won four. In the modern era, there's only Milena Cannonero who won four, which is a number that Powell might well reach on Sunday because she is nominated for not one but two films in this year's Best Costume Design Oscar category. She is up for Cinderella and for Carol. For Cinderella, she was nominated for the Costume Designers Guild Award for Excellence in a Fantasy Film and for the Best Costume Design Critics' Choice and BAFTA Awards. She also won the Hollywood Film Award and the Capri Hollywood Award for that film. For Carol, meanwhile, she was nominated for the Costume Designers Guild Award for Excellence in a Period Film, as well as the BAFTA and Critics' Choice Awards. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about her work on both of these films, but also her work on many others, dating back to the early 90s. Projects that include Orlando, The Crying Game, Interview with the Vampire, Rob Roy, The Wings of the Dove, Velvet Goldmine, The End of the Affair, Gangs of New York, Far From Heaven, Sylvia, Mrs. Henderson Presents, The Departed, The Other Boleyn Girl, Shutter Island, The Tempest, Hugo, and The Wolf of Wall Street, as well as the others already mentioned. Whether you're a fashionista or, like me, pretty clueless about the world of clothes and costumes, I think you'll find this conversation very interesting because Pal does a wonderful job at explaining how she does what she does so well. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation with one of the masters, Sandy Pal. Well, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And to begin with, I just want to ask you if style and fashion, if those are big things in your own life. Everybody obviously knows your work, but would we ever catch you at home in sweatpants and Crocs or or something like that? (laughs) Not sure about Crocs, no. But of course, I mean, of course I dress down at home. No, I I usually wear every day what's at the bottom of the bed on the floor, whatever I took (laughs) off yesterday. So I I can be found in jeans and a t-shirt quite often, yeah. But most of the time you look like you look today, which is just so stylish with now just to set the scene for people who obviously can't see you. I mean, your hair is always colorful. Has that always been? My hair has been dyed since I was 14 years old. How did that start? I don't know. It started actually age 14 um, buying henna. 
in a shop called Bieber in London, which was an incredibly fashionable shop in the 70s. Okay. And I was very much into window shopping and going going to shops when I was a kid. I loved clothes then. And I bought henna for the first time and dyed my hair orange. And has orange been the preferred color always? It has been orange quite a lot, various shades of orange or red. I've been through every color, though, in my (laughs) life. Was that when you first started thinking about fashion and aesthetics and appearance? What started that? I guess as a teenager... um, I started seriously thinking about fashion and and then realised that there was actually a a job to be had doing costume in theatre. But prior to that, as a kid, as a very small kid, I loved clothes and fashion. I made all my dolls' clothes. Really? And my mother used to make clothes for myself and my sister back in the 60s, which is what a lot of people did back then Mm -hmm. because there wasn't so much um, available Mm -hmm. as there is now. There wasn't the same mass production there is now. So I was very used to being around her cutting and making and choosing fabrics and patterns and got really interested at a very early age and learned to sew so really for as as far back as I I can remember I love clothes. When did it first occur to you as a career option were there other things you thought you might want to do? Do you know believe it or not I thought I was gonna be a doctor once. Really? Yeah yeah I did I because I enjoyed science at school and I was at a kind of academic school that sort of you know, pushed you to, to pick an academic option and said, oh, you can do art as a hobby right. in your spare time. Right. And then again, as a teenager, and I've always loved the cinema and the theatre and, and going to see certain films, and then there was a, a film in particular, Death in Venice, mm-hmm. that I saw, and I must have been about 14 or 15, and it just struck me as looking extraordinary and beautiful. And then I realised what it was, and it was the, the clothes as much as as much as the boy playing Tadzio mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, that appealed to me. How did you land your first job in the fashion world? What was the beginning? Well, I've never had a job in the fashion world. I mean, in costume. In co- part of me, yeah. Um, incredibly, my first job was I. Well, I, I studied theatre design at art school for a bit, mm-hmm. and actually didn't complete the course. I left without graduating because I actually met. I was fortunate enough to meet the one person that completely changed my life. And again, as a teenager, I saw on stage, and this is a dancer and choreographer called Lindsay Camp, mm-hmm. who was responsible for working with David Bowie during his Ziggy Stardust period. And so I knew of Lindsay Kemp having been obsessed by David Bowie and reading everything about him. So I knew of his work. Mm -hmm. As soon as I could see him on stage, I went to see him on stage. And I realised that was the world I wanted to be involved in. Cut to a few years later when I was at art school. Um, I applied to do some dance classes with Lindsay, who was doing dance classes at at a dance studio in London I just went along took myself along mm-hmm. put on my leotard <laughs> <laughs> pranced around pretending to be a cherry blossom or something ridiculous <laughs> and then spoke to him after and said I love your work I'm just obsessed by it and he literally took me under his wing we became friends that summer I never went back to college how did your family feel about that well I said I was taking a year out before graduating so it was okay and then at the end of that year I said I'm not going back and uh, and my mother at first was a little upset thinking well you know how was I ever going to survive without a degree right but actually it was the best education I could have had the first three weeks on a proper job I learned more than years all my years in college and school and you were doing a lot in that first year I think you said in Milan right and yeah the first job I did with Lindsay was in in Milan at the studio theater of La Scala so you were on your way quickly. It was he... Very lucky. Yeah. Well, but also obviously very good. And so when did the idea of film work enter the picture? Well, I did. I spent, let's say, a good four or five years doing theatre, not only with Lindsay, but in London with um, smaller um, visual theatre companies 
that were around a lot back in the 80s when there was an awful lot more money and funding via the Arts Council for experimental theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at the time I was doing the sets as well as the costumes. Um, and then I, I was really realising that I enjoyed the costumes more than the sets and at the same time becoming aware of other people's work like Derek Jarman. Um, and again, I, I kind of was fortunate enough to meet Derek. I invited Derek to see a show I'd designed and he came to see it and then I went to tea with him. So you invited him without knowing him? I invited him without knowing him. That's yeah. gutsy, I, yeah. Cold call, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why do you think his work had resonated with you? I think because it was theatrical. I mean, I think it, it, it had the same feeling as Lindsay's and that's what I was drawn to and attracted to. Sort of incredibly visual pieces. Mm-hmm. Non-conformist as well. I mean, sure. that always interests me. So he comes to see the show and you go out to tea and were you immediately kind of hitting him with the idea that you'd like to work with him on a film? Well, I think I must have said that to begin with. I must have said I was interested in moving into mm-hmm. film and he said, well, you know, okay, great, but maybe you should start at the bottom. And he introduced me to the world of pop videos, which were just really starting to get big then. This is like just music videos. Music videos, yeah. 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 And introduced me to a couple of producers, Sarah Radcliffe and Tim Bevan, who then had a company. Mm-hmm called Aldabra, I think they were called. Tiny little company in, in, in Soho that were producing music videos, and that's where I started. I did a year of those, and then a year later, Derek gave me Caravaggio to design. So you have said that he was your biggest influence and inspiration. You ended up doing four films with him before he tragically passed away so young. What was it that made him such a big influence and inspiration for you? I think, well, I mean, the first film I ever did with him, Caravaggio, was just an extraordinary experience. And I realise now in hindsight that not every film is like that. I mean, for all films, I have, I try to have fun on all films, but not all of them are quite as crazy as that was. And it was, um, he, he just had a real generosity of spirit. He trusted anybody's opinion. He would ask anybody their opinion, even if it was some, somebody sweeping up the set. He would say, oh, what do you think of this if we do this in this scene? Or what do you think if they wore this there? But one of the best pieces of advice he gave me was you know you have to take every day on a film set on your way to work as if you're going to a party with the same excitement and anticipation as if you're going to a party otherwise it's not worth it you have to have fun you have to enjoy it and I think he just gave everybody so many people their first chance he liked surrounding himself with young talented people I guess he also gave you a book that was important right the, oh, the book of photographs. Yes. Yeah, there's a, yeah. I mean, this is a book of photographs by a photographer called uh, Joseph Kudelka. And it was uh, photographs of Eastern European gypsies. And a lot of those images were used as reference in Caravaggio, alongside the Caravaggio paintings, because, mm-hmm. of course, the film wasn't, he didn't actually set the film in the Jacobean period. He set it sort of, I don't know, somewhere in Europe in the 1940s-ish, mm-hmm. a la, you know, the, the Italian neorealists. And this book stayed with me forever. I mean, I, I somehow get it out for whatever film I'm doing. There'll, there'll be something in there that I can use, just even if it's just a facial expression or the attitude of, of the stance of somebody will give me some kind of idea or inspiration. And it's quite nice. It's like keeping a piece of Derek with me, really, yeah. my, first, my first teacher. At that point, at the outset of your career working on films, who were the other film costume designers who you held on the highest pedestal? Um, well, the ones I was most aware of was, you know, the Italians, because they, they were the films I was watching. I was watching Fellini and Visconti. So Piero Tozzi, you know, who still to this day is 
the costume designer's costume designer. I mean, he really, I'm sure most costume designers will name him as the person they most look up to. It was great. He got his honorary Oscar a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah. yeah. How would you like to have been an Edith Head running a whole studio costume department in the Golden Age? It would have been a different job, but do you think it's a job you would have liked? I don't know. I, can't, I mean, I guess it would be a different job, but she, she managed to do sort of multiple films at the same time overlapping. Now, on one hand, that sounds like a complete nightmare because how can you do anything properly? On the other hand, I do find that when you're working and you're right in the thick of it, and your brain is going and you're having ideas, it's the time when you can actually take on more. Strangely, the more you do, the more you can, the more you can achieve. Because um, your imagination, sometimes on a film, there aren't enough places to put all your ideas. And so it would be quite a good thing to have more than one thing going at the same time. Was she or any of the other Golden Age greats somebody who you looked to and really admired? Oh, well, of course, all of those designers. And I love all those old things, mm-hmm. all those old, old, the 1930s and the 40s. But it was different then. I mean, it would have been, it would have worked like a machine. And I guess she wouldn't have had any choice about what she did. What I like about my job is even if I have to wait 18 months to find something that I like, I get to choose what I do. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's not, I don't, I try not to do something just for the sake of it because it's a job or to earn money. So let's talk about just a few of these questions that would apply to any project you do. First of all, how do you decide whether or not to take on a project? Do you have certain criteria? Definitely. Um, script and director I mean the script has to appeal first of all Mm -hmm. Um, I have to I mean really what I I would only work on something that I would go and see that I would actually pay money to see (laughs) Um, and I don't see the point in doing something that I don't like or love or wouldn't be interested in in the first place because I don't I don't think I could do good work on something my heart wasn't in do you find that you particularly gravitate toward one sort of film there's Contemporary, period, fantasy, where are you most at home? I suppose, well, I suppose I've done more, period. I like the idea of fantasy. I've done a little bit of fantasy. And a lot of my, a lot of the period things I've done have verged on fantasy or been stylized. I definitely, definitely visual and definitely things that I can design from scratch. Um, I haven't done that much contemporary, but I would if it was the right kind of contemporary. It's the right kind of story, the right kind of director, and the right kind of clothes that would be interesting mm-hmm. to design. How many projects will you be working on in one phase or another at any given time? So let's say you're in the thick of one. Are you also planning the next or things like that? No, rarely, actually, because nothing ever happens when you think it is. I mean, somebody <laughs> might say, oh, what are you doing next August? Can you do this film? Well, the chances are it's not going to happen then. It never, ever does. So mm-hmm. I try not to think about the next thing. The only time that did happen was whilst doing Cinderella, I knew that I was jumping straight onto Carol the minute it finished um, which was actually quite fortunate because then me and Kate got to talk quite a lot about what we are going to do on Carol whilst we were working on Cinderella which helped considering Kate's wasn't very available at all for fitting so I don't think I could have done Carol without having already worked with Kate if it had been with a new actress who I had equally little time with it would have been very very difficult Interesting What is the beginning of the process for you and how far in advance of the beginning of shooting do you need to be on the project? Depends on the scale of the project. Mm-hmm. Like Cinderella, for instance, I had almost a year. I mean, I knew a year before we started shooting. I, I started sort of doing research and development quite early, and then there was a bit of a gap, and then that was a big, long prep time of, I don't know, six, seven months. But then there was a lot to do. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas on Carol, I think I had six weeks. From, from jumping on board to starting shooting, nothing at all. So it really does depend. Sometimes it's a big rush 
but then a smaller project and other times you have a long time. It really varies. And for you, though, is there something that always happens first? You're looking at thinking about a color palette or a fabric or what is the beginning? The very first thing, I don't know, but the first thing obviously is reading the script and mm-hmm. talking to the director about their, their vision. And then I, if it's a period, I research whatever the period is properly. I do the proper research mm-hmm. as if I was doing something absolutely historically accurate. Then I go beyond that. Then I just start looking at contemporary fashion, art, anything. I, I tend to then think about the characters and I tend to just trust my instinct and go with I I quite early on have a feeling about colour for a character and then really even before thinking about what people are wearing I look at fabrics and cloth I mean that's the thing that really gets me going that starts me that inspires me actually feeling fabric looking at fabric looking at colours and quite often the fabric will dictate what the costume's going to be So aside from the director who are the others on the crew that you work most closely with? Well, my department. Of course, of <laughs> my course. My assistants and cutters. Which, how many might there be? Oh, God, uh, that could be anything from 10 to, you know, 100, depending on the scale. I mean, on Cinderella, the, the, there were so many people, I didn't know everybody's name, you know, it was <laughs> people coming and going. Um, but I have a, you know, a core group of, of people around me, my one, two assistants, close assistants, a supervisor, and then the people who, the cutter is somebody I really like to work closely with, the people who really are just making, creating the costumes and working in 3D. Um, but aside from my department, mm-hmm. the uh, production designer and the set decorator, it's really useful to be in touch with them consistently just to sort of see what they're doing and they know what I'm doing and so it all works together. And the DP, of course. Sure. So how does that work, though, logistically, where... You guys may not be in the same place. No, exactly. Well, of course, now everything's easy with the internet. the internet. I mean, you know, you can. it's really easy to sort of get information. But also, how do you reconcile if there's a, a very opinionated production designer or cinematographer, and I'm sure you have mm. your opinions, how do you arrive at the middle ground? Well, that's the director's job, isn't it, to sort all that out? I mean, and that's... You know, if the director is good, he picks the right combination of people, or she picks the right combination of people mm-hmm. to work together. And that's when I think a film is most successful, when that combination is absolutely right and everybody's doing their, their best work and it's like all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. Right. You have said in a number of other interviews that I read preparing for this something that I was sort of surprised about, which is that the first thing that you think about as far as the actual clothing is the underwear. Why is that? That's not a surprising thing. I mean, most designers will tell you the same thing because the underwear is the foundation, provides the silhouette. Now, if we're talking specifically period things, really. I mean, even, well, even contemporary, even a woman's brassiere today is a different shape than it was 20 years ago. So it provides a difference. A woman in a T-shirt 20 years ago isn't going to look exactly the same as a woman in a T-shirt now. And I'm, probably most people won't notice that. I will. Mm-hmm. Um Going back in time, corset, different corset shapes and different crinolines or cages or bustles or whatever is underneath the skirts provides the silhouette for the period. So the underwear is the foundation garment and is the most crucial bit to begin with. You have also said something else that, I mean, granted, I'm ignorant about most of what you do, but this is not my area. <laughs> but, but this really surprised me that dirt is very important to you when you're talking about <laughs> costumes. <laughs> well, I mean, it's either dirt. Well, it depends on, 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 the, on the project. I mean, like Gangs of New York, for instance, was covered in dirt. It really was grime right. and muck and dirt. But even the most ordinary things, even if you were doing something fine clothing, I mean, I mean even something like Carol, for instance, you don't want any of the clothes to look like they have just come off the rack, you know, just come out of the store. You want them to look like they've been worn in. Now, it's not, it might not be actual dirt that right. you put on, but, but I mean, 
there's a certain amount you can do to make things look worn. You, there is grease. There is. I mean, clothes get worn in, and they get they they develop a shape. You know, they mold themselves to a body, and you need to be able to do that. Sure. How do you know when a costume is finished? I can't tell you that. I I just know. You do have to know, and that's a really, it's a really, it's a skill. I think that's a, a skill is knowing when to stop. Because you could go you on. You could forever. go on and on and on. You could yeah. you could go on either improving it or you could go on overdoing it. And I think you have to. You know, there's a moment in a fitting with an actor, and you put something on, and you might have tweaked it, changed it, done something, or tried something else. And there is a moment when the character appears, and that's that's the moment when it's done. And you know, you think, okay, we don't need to try on anything else. Let's not complicate it. This is the one. <laughs> so, if you have done your job well, should or shouldn't someone notice your work? In a way, it shouldn't be. Yeah, you shouldn't notice the costumes above the film, above what's being said or what's being done. I mean, I think it's it's fine to sort of think, oh my god, it looks beautiful, but it shouldn't be distracting. It should be. It should just be there and be part of that character. The whole point is that we're making a character and the character has to be believable. If it looks like somebody in a silly dress, (laughs) it's not going to work. Unless they're meant to be wearing a silly dress, of course. (laughs) I hope we can talk about a few of the other great films that you've done leading up to this year. And then obviously we'll dive into those. But to begin with, with Orlando for Sally Potter, you travel through so many different eras in, in time to me it seems like that must have been like having to design for many films was that a unique and difficult challenge um at the time when i did it it was early in the 90s and i'd just come off the back of derek jarman films and then from that theater so it still felt a little bit theatrical it still felt the same as doing a play so i wasn't that phased by it and although it's different periods um it's it it is all stylized it does have a, a, a specific look and each set piece was quite small I mean the thing about Orlando is it looks huge and lavish and actually it's very small there are not many characters in it not many scenes with big crowds so it was manageable with the crying game this first of all I think was the beginning of your working relationship with Neil Jordan I did one film before that called The Miracle The Miracle okay Mm. so there's a few collaborations where four or five six films this is one of them so I want to ask you about working with him but also about the challenge of this film which I guess was to help fool the audience yeah. into believing that Jay Davidson was, uh, was a, woman. a woman. Yeah. Um, really strangely, actually, I met Jay Davidson without realizing it in a nightclub, <laughs> thinking he was a woman. Really? Yep. Before um, any before of Before he was actually cast, yeah. Well, I thought he was an extraordinary looking woman, but a bit flat-chested. I mean, because he wasn't doing anything. He wasn't wearing women's clothes necessarily, but he just had this extraordinary look. And we did meet in a nightclub, and I remembered him. And then that was about a year or a few months prior to The Crying Game starting and being cast. And then when he was cast, I thought, we we know each other, we've met. So, And I said to Neil, I have no doubt this person will work because I thought this person was a woman <laughs> in a nightclub. That's amazing. Wow, what are the odds? Have you, by the way, kept in touch with Jay Davidson? I wondered if he still no, acts or anything. Um, well, I did bump into him well, it was quite a long time mm-hmm. ago and also quite a long time after, and he completely, completely changed. He got all muscly and... Really? Yeah. Oh, so... <laughs> Been to the gym. You couldn't do that movie again with <laughs> no, him. No, <laughs> I don't. I think that was a one-off thing for him, actually. And he was very young at the time. Yes. Yeah. Interview with the Vampire, another one with... Jumping through periods. Yes. That was another one going through different periods. And also dealing with, from what I've read, some of the the politics that you may encounter on a movie, you know, to whatever extent you're able to share. You know, there are 
I guess would have been called quote unquote vanity concerns on a, for many movie stars. You deal with a lot of movie stars. What was that one like? Um, it was a great experience actually. That was that was my first big film mm-hmm. in terms of scale and studio and budget. And then of course you know the, the people who were in it. Was, Brad Pitt, was, Tom Cruise, you on. know. Quite a terrifying prospect, but in fact, both guys were set were really easy. I didn't have any problems with either of them. I don't know what else I can say. It was it was actually it was it was a big long job, and ultimately really satisfying. And one I've sort of forgotten about, and I, and I saw I've seen bits of it recently on TV, and I keep thinking I must watch that again. It actually looks good. You know how you <laughs> you finish something quite often, watch it once, and then you just put That's it away. Right. You don't see it for years and years, and. I do need to go back and, and revisit that. Sure. You have done a lot of films that have been distributed by Harvey Weinstein at Merrimax <laughs> or in the new company, yes. up to and including Carol. But I believe the first was, well, The Crying Game was distributed by them, but I don't know how much you had yeah, to do they with came, that. No, they came in it after. Right. Yeah, they came out and sort of revived it and right. made it the... So the first time you would have actually interacted with Harvey Weinstein with would have been the Wings of the Dove? It was Wings of the Dove, yes. <laughs> and what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> My first, yeah. I I actually designed Wings of the Dove and was around for the shoot in London. Then it went to Venice. And just as it went to Venice, I started work on an Neil Jordan film in Ireland called The Butcher Boy. So I was stuck in Ireland. I mean, doing a fabulous film, but I was stuck in somewhere cold and damp in Ireland where the rest of my team were in Venice doing Wings of the Dove. And I do remember getting a call one day saying, Harvey doesn't like the hats. This is this is like the period 1913 when the women had big hats because that's what we wore. They were in Venice. They were going in and out of churches. Harvey doesn't want the hats. Because like, it's harder to see the faces? Oh, whatever reason. You know, yeah. people are scared of hats. <laughs> yes, maybe we can't see the faces. Things are nice about and I had to do an emergency dash um, to Venice. I don't remember meeting him at that point, but it was, and I, we had to do, I changed, I did actually take the hats off and we did head coverings all for this particular scene and that was fine. But then what happened after that, the next encounter that I remember was Gangs of New York, um, which is a film about hats. <laughs> <laughs> so in that one... You know, Martin Scorsese, hats. Right. He likes hats. Yeah. He likes clothes. He likes... And... We were set up in we were set up in Chinichita and and Harvey came to visit the costume department came and he said well they're not going to be wearing hats are they and I just looked at him and laughed I said you're joking I said, of course they're wearing hats right and I had to explain I said why what's wrong with hats you know people aren't going to run screaming from the theatre because guys have got hats on if the hats work with the costumes and the characters they're going on and if they and I said I'm not going to do anything that's going to look stupid I won't make an actor look stupid I won't make them look ugly you know. And so They're he, wearing hats. We've obviously won him over uh, over the years with so many great uh, collaborations. So. Yes. So that begs another question. So from Orlando to The Crying Game to Shakespeare in Love, another Harvey movie, you have done a number of movies about people who were born one gender and now appear to be another. Mm. Is that just coincidental? Is it something that interests you? It, it's now the most timely kind of thing in the, yes there. I've been there done that yeah, years right, ago right. Um, I don't know I think probably because of the people I started out with I mean you think about Lindsay Kemp Derek Jarman that whole world it, uh, it just sort of it's coincidental really isn't it I mean Orlando's Orlando I mean, it's a, and then the crying game you're right and Shakespeare in love I don't know why of course it interests me sure it's uh, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great challenge as a costume designer, really, to right. make make somebody be believable as the opposite sex. And when you see another movie this year, The Danish Girl, where they had that challenge, is it tough to when you don't have a Jay Davidson who physically is very feminine looking? How much of that falls on you? You know, is it? Stressful, because with Jay Davidson or any of these, if the audience doesn't believe it, the movie doesn't work. It depends. I mean, The Danish Girl is different because it's about somebody who's not, at the the time, he's not actually trying to be believably a woman. He just has to be a woman because that's what he feels he has Mm -hmm. to be. He has to dress as a woman. I mean, there there are plenty of transgender people who don't look remotely like the sex they want to be. They just like to wear the clothes. It doesn't really matter. Um, so it depends on the project. With with the crying game, obviously, it had to be completely and utterly convincing. Shakespeare in Love is different. I mean, it was a comedy. Right. I mean, everybody knew it was Gwyneth Paltrow. Right. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> right. It, it it was kind of different thing. And and, and Orlando again, because it's such a sort of weird stylized character and, and film that I don't think it mattered. That I mean, not as much. It didn't matter so much. Velvet Goldmine, first time working with Todd Haynes, who yeah. again the connection. Velvet Goldmine, to Far From Heaven, to Carol. What's he like and why do you guys work so well together? Is he a very visual guy? Yeah, I mean, I guess all my favourite directors and the ones that I've worked with mm-hmm. repeatedly are the most visual. I mean, Derek, Neil, Marty and Todd are all predominantly visual directors. Now, I know all directors are visual to some capacity, otherwise we wouldn't be film directors. <laughs> but um, some are more more like think like painters than others, Um and Todd is one of those, and I just we just get on. I just like Todd. He's really great to work with, really easy, and I just think he's a genius. And you mentioned colors being very important to him. I think the color palette on Far From Heaven was a major talking point, right, for oh, all of you guys? completely. I mean, we had these really in-depth meetings. There was myself, Todd, Mark Freeberg, production designer, Ed Lapman, DP, um, that went on for days <laughs> going through the, the the script scene by scene, and then also going through all that heaven allows, the, and plus other Cirque films, minute by minute, just analysing them and looking at them, and then Todd did provide us scripts with little um, little Pantone colour charts above each scene or, or sections or groups of scene that were that weren't specifically for the scene, but it was just sort of what was in his head, what he was feeling, which was a really great guideline. So it was really, it's a really brilliant way to receive a script with colours. And it's sort of how I work anyway. I mean, I think I do that anyway, instinctively and subconsciously. I, right. I look at something and see it, see it in colour. So to actually work with somebody who understands that. You mentioned Gangs of New York was your first collaboration with Scorsese. I'm curious how that came about. But also, you say he's a very visual director and he works closely with his costume designer. And in fact, I've read that he's sort of almost obsessed with the feel of the mm. clothes. Can you talk about that? Because that's a side of him I don't think most people know. No, probably not. Well, you know, but everybody knows what he looks like, and he always is incredibly well turned out. Even coming to work every day on a film set, he's smart. Um, the shoes are always shiny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shirt's always mm-hmm. pressed. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not throwing on a pair of sneakers and a right. T-shirt. And a baseball cap. No, Absolutely certainly right. not. So he he enjoys clothes and appreciates them but of course he's got that incredible memory and remembers every single thing you tell him so you can't get away with any you can't get away with pretending you haven't told him something right. or yeah. or changing your mind because he'll remember but i mean I, it's just something that i've noticed that when every time an actor comes onto the set with a new costume he looks them up and down then he touches it i mean it's you know he touches it especially if it's a man in a suit um he touches the cloth and it's something i just think that's really nice yeah. that sort of from the Gangs of New York collaboration came, I think, one of the outfits that you're 
proudest of. I think it may be fair to say the Bill the Butcher yeah. outfit. Why was that such a special one to you? Well, the film as a whole was special. It was absolute. Again, it was you know first first film with Scorsese. It was huge and terrifying. You know, cause I, and and we shot the whole thing in Rome. Which so we're sort of shooting in a country where we didn't know. I, I didn't have a regular team. Right. Um, on a script that grew and grew, and a schedule that grew and grew, and it was just changing and changing and changing, and with thousands of thousands of characters and and extras that we made from scratch, and working with Daniel was an incredible experience. Really, I mean, everyone knows what. I mean, everyone's heard the rumors of what he's like, how he's obsessive about things, and he is, but in a very good way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just one of those moments where you where you put a costume on on somebody and a shape and a silhouette and it works and it comes to life. There was just I don't know I can't really describe what it was, but it just it just worked with him definitely and the clothes and that. And just two years later, you're back with Scorsese on the Aviator, mm. and what I've read about that one was that it had a $2 million budget for clothes. Is that unusual? I don't remember. You see, I'm really rubbish at remembering my budgets. If that's the case, though, would that be unusually yeah. large for a... No, I think it probably wasn't as much as that, quite honestly. I think that's an exaggeration. Yeah. You know, just for... But no, for I mean, one, one and a half is not... No, for a, sc- a film that scale, no, it's not unusual. I mean, clothes, what would be the average? You know, because Joe Schmo doesn't know what it costs oh, to do these films. Oh, goodness. Well, it's... I mean, yeah, a couple of million for Cinderella, but then Carol was um, something like... 150,000. I mean, I'd say Cinderella was 10 times the budget of Carol. Wow. So, so you sometimes just have to you make, make it work. And then I just recently did a film. The last film I did was with John Cameron Mitchell in London called How to Talk to Girls at Parties. And that had the smallest budget I've worked on since the 80s, practically. I mean, it was so low. But we somehow scrapped it together. No, it was, I, I can't remember. It was, it was pretty low. Really? So, is that a consideration when you're deciding whether to take on a film? I mean, you can only do so much within a budget. So, is that. That's a, true. I mean, if. Well, if it's a film and a script that I love but the budget is unrealistic I would do my best to convince the director and the producers to make the script smaller to actually you know let this is it what you're asking me to do in this script is impossible to do on this money what do you want right you know right. I can, we can give you I can give you less right you know let's let's make let's reduce the numbers or let's do we really need this scene mm-hmm. you know do we really need to have this conversation in the ballroom can't it be outside the ballroom <laughs> That's my, or on the battlefield, right. you know, kind of be just round the corner. Right, that makes sense. The Aviator was also the first time that you worked, I believe, with Kate Blanchett. Yes, and that canary yellow dress that you made for her in that film mm. has an interesting story as well. Well, I wouldn't describe it as canary yellow. Pardon me, it's, no, it's, I, I am again it's a kind ignorant. Of a, no, it's a quite a difficult one. It is, it's a very specific. It's a very odd sort of acidic, greeny, mustardy yellow. It's a very weird color. But yeah, we on on Aviator. Um, Bob Richardson and Marty were, were trying out different effects for the for the the two different color techniques, and one was the sort of um, I forgot what it's called, the very early stages yeah, yeah. of color, where you know the the greens went blue and it was all a bit odd. But we knew that was going to happen, and then it went into sort of stronger technicolor look, and so we did some camera tests at the beginning, and all I could do at the beginning was test bits of swatches of fabric in the, in the colors that I knew that I wanted, and then did variations on a tone like I had a color that I liked and I, I dyed it some darker some bluer some green or whatever had a, a range of colors tested it and then picked the color when I saw the the results of what I was going to make the dress out of so I made there's a couple of dresses which I made thinking that was all going to be okay and then I did see the dailies I saw it when it's put together fortunately before it was finished 
and the dress came out hideous it came out it, it sort of came out like khaki like an army khaki disgusting colour and it was like oh my god that's hideous that hasn't worked and for whatever reason you know things were adjusted or things hadn't come out as we thought and luckily Thelma was um, very sympathetic and, and they actually changed the colour of the dress Digitally. Digitally afterwards. And Bob always, um, you know, joked that it's the most expensive, <laughs> expensive dress ever made. That's great. But it was great to have the colour change. And the same thing ha- actually happened in Cinderella. There was a few colour things that, that came out really strangely different on camera than when we were seeing them on the monitors. You know, it just was like really bizarre. So you just can digitally... And I, yeah, I did actually, I insisted <laughs> that I go to the um, grading and... And get get them changed, which thankfully I was able to do. Because I mean, although the colours were nice and everyone yeah. else liked them, I thought, well, that's not the colour I chose. That's, right. It's not meant to be that colour. That shade of green is meant to be this shade of green. So I think a good example of the degree to which you research stuff before you go to work on something is the Young Victoria, because you really dove into that, right? Well, I guess that's that that was a project, a subject that you had to do properly because yeah. it's about a real person in real time. I mean, quite often. Um, on period films, I do take a bit of artistic license. If we're just telling a story, you know, and we're not creating pieces for a museum or making a documentary, then you can take liberties. But in this particular case, I did, I did want to get it right as far as possible. I mean, you know, I didn't make exact replicas of her clothes because Emily Blunt was, you know, a normal-sized woman and Queen Victoria was child size. <laughs> and the reason I knew that was because I got to go to Kensington Palace and, and look through her, her actual clothing. They, they, the archivist took them out of uh, their sort of tissue paper wrapped in boxes and we were given cotton gloves and actually allowed to handle these items of clothing, which were incredible. And then it just made me depressed that there's no way that we could ever make anything <laughs> as fine as that because we don't have the same fabrics or the materials or even the machinery is different. Right. It's so fine and so tiny. And even things like her diaries and paintings and things you were yeah, able to... Yeah, you could look at everything. Yeah, yeah read, read the, the letters to her mother. I mean, really great written descriptions of things where, although I wouldn't have copied exactly, I did my own versions, but it, it does help. It helps to get inside. And the one contemporary one that you have done was Wolf of Wall Street. That's not contemporary, you see. You wouldn't, so you, it's already, I 90s is already, period. I know, oh depressingly, I know, it is. Technically, yeah, yeah. 20 years old oh is vintage. So it started in the 80s, 80s and 90s. 80, yeah. And I guess I really realised it was period at the time of doing it when I found that I, it was really difficult to find those clothes, to actually find 90s clothes, because really? it's a bit too soon for people to be throwing them out or to be right. appearing in, you know, in vintage jobs. Right. Um, so, it, it, but it, but it actually, it's no. Departed was a contemporary film. Oh, that That's makes the sense. contemporary yes, one. Yes, yes. Not Wolf. So, 2015, amazing to have both of these movies come out, and the common thread as well is Kate Blanchett. And so, I just want to ask you, generally, why is she fun to dress? It seems like people really like working with her in terms of clothing. Well, there's one easy. I mean, one easy thing to say is that everything looks good on her anyway. So you have to work really hard to make something look bad. Is it which, just a certain body type? It's. I, I don't even know whether it's the physicality. It's just some people wear clothes really well. I mean, I've, I've come across people who haven't got the perfect model figure, right. but you put clothes on them and they work. And it's just something about somebody's presence and being and also knowing how to wear clothes, mm-hmm. knowing how to strike the right pose and sell it. I mean, she basically helps sell it. Totally, yeah. So let's knock out... Cinderella and then Carol. So Cinderella, to begin with, you're offered this, I guess, 
by Kenneth Branagh directly at first. And the question I wonder is, knowing that it's been told so many different times over so many different decades, beautifully in so many different ways. I mean, I know that Walt Disney said that his favorite animated sequence of all time was the ball gown transformation in Cinderella. So did that give you any pause about getting involved with it? Because there is so much, you know, expectation that comes with it. Or do you embrace the challenge? I was... I was really interested in doing Cinderella, probably because it came straight after The Wolf of Wall Street and it was such a contrast, you know, all that testosterone on The Wolf of Wall Street and finally a girly film. Um, And I did like the challenge of taking on something that was so iconic. And and it's quite good to be scared of a challenge as well. So, you know, to actually do something that has been done and everybody knows. And, and also something where you could just let your imagination run wild. And that's that's what I like the idea of, doing something big and expansive and colourful and to appeal to a, a young audience as well as an adult audience. So the thing that everybody goes into that movie waiting to see is the ball gown. The and gown, so yes. The gown. <laughs> what were the considerations for you in designing it and how did it all come together? Strangely, my first thought was, oh, I'm not going to do it blue because I didn't want it to look like... I mean, I wasn't given a brief. I wasn't told that I had to do anything remotely like the animation. We were doing a new version. Mm -hmm. But no one actually said to me, but the dress has to be blue or it has to be anything. So I kind of went through... and Because I normally start with Mm colour, I went through all these different things. Okay, what could it be? And and I think Ken might say, what about a white? And I thought, well, no, but she's going to be getting married later. We have to have a a pale colour. We'd have to have a cream wedding dress. And I knew I didn't want pink... And then I thought, well, yellow's a bit odd and green's a bit odd. So we came back to blue, and blue actually is the perfect colour. Um, it's it's flattering and it works. And so I then worked on what kind of blue and how to achieve the blue. And it's, it is a different blue from the original. And then having done it, of course, I realised there's no way in the world it could be any other colour but blue. I mean, it had to be blue. <laughs> and she had to be able to move. And she had to be able to move. So then I thought, what does what does this dress actually have to do? What what are the most important scenes this dress has to be in? And it's it's, you know, dancing in the ball scene and then running away so I really wanted the dress to move beautifully that was the most important thing it had to stand out from the crowd um, move and yet be simple it couldn't be sort of um, over the top embellished or adorned because that's what everybody else is going to look like at the ball so the only real adornment would be the butterfly and the butterfly yeah it had to have a little bit of something yeah and I thought well what on earth can I I didn't want to do jewels I didn't want to do anything obvious and, and and initially there was a lot more initially in this script there was a lot more scenes of her interacting with animals apart from the ones that we do see there was a bit more of that going on and I thought well maybe the animals could help with the dress and the butterflies could land on her and then that could be the that could be the decoration yeah. so that's where that came from and what was the I've read something about lighting it up through no, the, this dress doesn't light up. The, the fairy That's godmother's later. the fairy godmother's <clears throat> dress has lights in. I wanted the dress to look as if it was being lit from within, and I did toy with the idea of lighting it. Then I'm glad I didn't because it didn't need that. I mean, basically, Cinderella has to somehow her her, her natural beauty has to somehow emanate <laughs> through that dress. But I did I did want the dress to light beautifully, so it was built up of many layers, many very very fine diaphanous layers of different shades I mean there are greens in there turquoise lavender lilac blues and a, and a the very bottom layer is a sort of iridescent pale colour which sort of the light hits and comes off and then over the top the top layer is covered in like 10,000 minute little Swarovski crystals so they catch the light so it's actually oh my god 
Yeah, it was actually making it light up without it lighting yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. You also worked with Swarovski on the slippers. The shoe, yeah. How did that come to be? And also, especially in light of the fact that apparently the ones that we see on the screen are not actually the ones that she's wearing. I'm so amazed that people actually yeah. think that someone can There's put a glass shoe on their foot. They don't move. It must not be comfortable, yes. I, I would they don't move. But the, the shoe was really a, a challenge. It was really like, how on earth am I going to do this? And even though it was a prop, I, I, got, I got the opportunity to design the prop shoe or what the shoe was going to look like when it was on her foot. And so, you know, it was going to be glass. And it was like, how do you do a glass shoe where a foot squashed in and doesn't look really ugly? it was clear so it had to be a decorated glass and then I went to museums I went to the V&A museum in London and looked through all the glass departments of the decorative glass looked at engraved glass cut glass coloured glass and then hit on crystal and thought crystal is the way to go it lights it refracts it's it's cut and then once I thought of crystal I thought well, there's only one company I can think of to work with on that so I approached them about doing it and it wasn't easy. I mean, they were interested, definitely. And then when they got my ideas and the designs, it was a point where we, said, we don't know whether this is achievable. We actually don't know whether we can do it. We've never done anything this big that's hollow. And then why was the CGI brought in on this one for her? Well, we made we did actually end up successfully creating a crystal shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to develop some special technology as well. I'm not quite sure what it was. You're not allowed inside the factory, unfortunately. Really? Sadly. Even I mean, you? I got to go to Vottens uh, in Austria where, yeah, the, where right. the world of Swarovski is. There's a right. whole town devoted to Swarovski. <laughs> but nobody's allowed inside the factory, so I had right. to wait for them to come out holding the glass shoe in their, in their sort of kid gloves. Um, but that was the prop. That's the one that's held by the prince. That's the one that we see on the step, the one that falls off. And then what she actually wears, what Cinder actually wears, is um, a leather shoe, the same height and shape. And then the visual effects department sort of CGI the glass one onto her foot. There are so many others that I could ask you about. I know we have time limits, so I want to ask you just, and again, we'll know people should go and check out the stepmother's dress and the fairy godmother with the wings. She is lit up All of them lit up, yes. But the wedding gown was the next big one, as you referenced. Mm. And I heard that after all the work that went into that, it... It literally went up in flames. So what happened? It there? did. It was the <laughs> it was the day we shot the scene, um, and the wedding dress was one of the. It, it took a long time to make because all of the flowers on it were hand painted. It was wow. you know an amazing, amazing sort of hand painted, beautiful job. And I wanted it to look like one of those nineteen fifties hand painted dresses, which is it's kind of what it did in the end. And after we shot the scene, I mean. Every time we shot a new scene with a new costume, the actors would then go off to this little hut on, on, in Pinewood Studios where the stills photographer was set up in a little studio and have special photographs taken. So Lily, and it was in winter, or it was cold. Yeah, I think it was winter. And it was cold, and she was in this little hut and waiting for it to be set up. And, and the only form of heating in the hut was a little sort of electric bar heater that was behind a table. She was standing in front of the table, then suddenly smoke started appearing and there was a smell in the room. And the whole of the bottom of the skirt had oh, caught fire. Unfortunately, just... it was silk, which meant it smouldered. It didn't actually go up in flames. So, but so your, your she uh, was heart must have sunk when you oh, saw that. Oh, my God. No, when, everyone, <laughs> when I wasn't there at the time, and then it was like, oh, my God, the dress has gone up in... No, Lily's on fire. And my first reaction was, how's the dress? Yeah. And everyone was like, well, what about Lily? Oh. Right. Well, she'll be okay. <laughs> she'll yeah. be okay. 
We had to remake the whole of the top layer. To do you done. usually make multiple copies of a costume in case somebody goes to craft services and you spills ketchup? You can't afford to or, do that. It depends can't. on the costume. Right. I mean, if you were doing a totally white costume right. that had to go through a lot of scenes, then yes, you would. You I mean, would. the ball gown, there are eight ball gowns because that had to do a lot of things and sure. it was worn by a stunt double as well. So Interesting. Last question about that is what have you made of the reaction to the costumes in Cinderella? On the one hand, everybody obviously thinks that the craft and everything was beautiful. On the other hand, I know that there's been a lot of feedback about the fact, you know, and, and you've talked about this, about her waist that people were offended that, you know, I guess they felt that it set an unattainable standard for young people or whatever. But in fact, you said it's sort of a visual distortion, right? Well, it is. It's yeah. ridiculous. I mean, number one, Lily actually is a slim girl. So she has a small waist. She can't help that, right. you know. And then... The nature of the dress is she wears a corset because, as we said before, the corset provides the silhouette uh, for the dress. And it was sort of roughly set in the 19th century. So this is a sort of vaguely 19th century style corset. But the volume of the dress is so huge that it makes the waist look tiny. I mean, it it really is an an illusion. (laughs) I mean, her waist is small, but it's not an unattainably small waist for somebody who's already small. So it's, you know, it's... It was a lot of fuss about nothing, unfortunately. And then and then people sort of started complaining about why do you have to put them in corsets? Well, it's a period film. If you take all the corsets out of all those costumes, I mean, young Victoria without corsets would be a mess. <laughs> so now you go from there to 1950s New York. And first of all, you had read Patricia Highsmith's novel, Car- uh, it wasn't called Carol. Price uh, of Souls. Price of, mm-hmm. Yeah. Before becoming a part of the film? it was. I did. I yeah. just, well, I'd, I'd never read any Patricia Highsmith. And I was um, at a station somewhere in the southeast coast of London on my way back home, and I realised I didn't have a book to read, and it was a tiny little provincial station. There was just a few books for sale, and this was one of them. It was a thin novel, and I thought, I haven't read any Patricia Highsmith. That'll be interesting, reading a thriller on the train. And read it in one go, and I was amazed. It wasn't a thriller. Well, that was Luckily, thrilling. you didn't meet a stranger on the, on the train. Yeah. Right? That was her other... Oh, yeah, was... that's true, yeah. Um, and I just yeah. was blown away by it. And I thought, this would just make the most amazing film. I just read it and saw the film. And how much longer after that? How, how much after that? A few years. I yeah. mean, I'd say four or five years later. So you hear from Todd Haynes, we're going to do well, this. No, before Todd, I heard from Elizabeth Carlson, the producer, who is somebody okay. I've known from way back, who I worked with back in the 80s and 90s. So we've known each other for a long time. She said she had the rights to the book and she was right. doing this film that Kate was already attached to with another director. Interesting. Now, you had already obviously dealt with the 50s and Far From Heaven and other things, but this was a different... Different 50s. Yeah. I mean, Far From Heaven was 57, which is the tail end of the 50s, which looks completely different from 52, which is the beginning of the 50s, which in my mind isn't the 50s yet. It's still the 40s. It's like the end of the, the end 40s. Of, yeah. it's, a, it's a transitional way in all these right. sort of, all the beginning of decades are really transitional where you get a bit of the, of the last decade plus new things creeping in. And I don't think the 50s kicks in until midway through. So it's completely totally different aesthetic different. From, from Far From Home. And also you have two characters who have completely different backgrounds, which yeah. is going to affect your clothing choices for them, right? Yeah, definitely. Can you talk about just, you know, knowing that Carol's older and has a bit of money versus Therese, who's just out of school, you know, when you're thinking about how you want to design their outfits, what do you look at different sources for yeah, inspiration? Yeah, of course. I mean, Carol started with, obviously, conversations with Todd, and Todd always provides visuals of his own anyway. Uh, and the one thing, he doesn't necessarily provide specific costume reference, but he was very aware of the period. He knew what the shapes of the period were. And 
we took we discussed Therese as being you know a little bit bohemian I mean not incredibly arty not quite beatnik yet but maybe a few years later she could have been mm-hmm. not much money but and it, it's a strange look it's a look which to our modern eyes looks a bit frumpy but back then was quite cool young person without much money so sort of dark tones and and quite functional and a bit of mix and match like she can't afford that much so mm-hmm. what she has a few items have to all work together compared to Carol who obviously is a woman of means and enjoys clothes and can afford good ones um and we both knew that really her silhouette should be the lean silhouette of the period as opposed to the new look the Dior new look which was in late 40s big full skirts which would have felt too extravagant for her character and in fact it's carol's perfect put together look that in some ways initially helps to draw Therese to her, right, from the gloves on, right? Yeah, I mean, in, in the book and in the, in the screenplay, you, it, there are descriptions, really vivid descriptions of Therese just, you know, obsessed with the look or the texture or the feel or the smell of, of Carol's clothing, even the, the stocking, the sheen of the stocking, the, the, the feeling of the glove, even looking inside the purse, the mysteries of inside a woman's right, purse. Right, right completely uh, has an effect on her. Is there one costume from this movie that you think is going to be talked about longer than others? I mean, I know I've seen a lot of references to Carol's mink coat and things, but is there one that for you stands out above the other? Well, others? I mean, my favorite is not necessarily the one that everyone's going to talk about. But, I mean, I, I was really amazed at the number of people that talk about Therese's hat, which I think is hysterical. I mean, it's just a little, you know, plaid tam hat. But... She wears it all the way through, and it really does sum up the character. And I remember the day I found that hat, and I thought, that's for Therese. It was, that was one of those moments. This is, I don't have to look for that anymore. That that's was true. the hat. And that works. So I, think, I think if I had to pick, pick them, it would be Therese in her, you know, hooded jacket and the hat and, and Carol in the fur, really. Because those, those two outfits just sum them both up. And that was one that was not found at a vintage store, right? The coat, yeah. No, the coat we did have to make because I couldn't find the perfect one. I had the perfect one in my head, and it was the and color and all it. of that. Was... I, it needed to be pale. It needed to be a pale color. I think you know to, to to make a stand out from the crowd, but not be too obviously different. And just that air of elegance and luxury. There's something about pale colors and rich people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just great. it's that sort of yeah luxury. Have any costumes that you've made meant so much to you that you've held on to them after a shoot? Yes. <laughs> Can you share? I do try to I do try to keep one or two from every film if I can, if I'm allowed to, because technically they don't belong to me. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily get to keep my favourites, unfortunately, because quite often the favourites are the best ones that get snapped up by somebody else, a producer or whoever's financier or whoever's mm-hmm. paid for it, mm-hmm. or they get sold mm-hmm. at auction. But I do have one or two things. Is there one that you prize the most? I don't know. I can't think. I, I can't actually think about if I had to keep one. Probably probably the aviator dress. This is the yellow. Kate Blanchett. Yes. Yellow dress I have, yeah. Is there anything? And the real the butcher. Oh, See, yeah, no, you I'll, have get, I'll do well? a whole list. I, do, I have the stunt done. That's cool. That one. That's yeah. great. Is there anything specific that you haven't done in film that you most want to do? I'd heard something about black and white. Yeah, I did always want to do black and white, and now I'm about to do black and white. Really? Yes. We're about to start working on Todd's next film called Wonderstruck, half of which is going to be shot in black and white. 
you go back and look at the Jezebels in movies like I that? I will to, be. I haven't started yet. Yeah. I start in two weeks. That's great. You've won three Oscars already. You could win a fourth on Sunday. I wonder, in your view, did you get them for the right films? Let's say you were, oh. were going to get three, but did you? Get, <laughs> nobody's saying you shouldn't have three, but are they for the right films, in your view? Be honest. That's really hard. Yes and no. It's so difficult. I mean, it's so difficult. I mean, the year of Shakespeare in Love and Velvet Goldmine, I loved Velvet Goldmine. Right. And I, you know, I had two nominations in one year. That was really Again. difficult. But I'm proud. But then I received the BAFTA that year for Velvet Goldmine, so it balanced out. Okay. And have the Oscars impacted your life or career in any way? Do you think they've made things easier in any sense? Or are they just nice decoration? I, think, I suppose what it does is it, it gives you the choice. And that's what I, yeah. I mean, once you've got a couple of those, then you, you, you're in a position where you will be asked simply because you've got one of them. Not, I mean, you might not even be the best person for that job, but you get asked, so at least you get the choice to say no. Um, but really, quite often, the year after you receive an Oscar, you don't get any work at all, because I think because everyone assumes you're busy. <laughs> it's a really strange right. thing. It's a really strange thing that happens. You could easily go for months with nothing. So last thing, two-parter. You are nominated for both Cinderella and Carol this year. Do you have in your own mind one that you are sort of pulling for more than the other? And also, part B, do you design your own Oscar dress? Part B, yes. yes. <laughs> I do. I, I have. Or I haven't every year, um, but this time I have, yes. And I like to. If I can, if I've got the time, then yeah. That's fair. And... Part A, I can't answer that question. But do you have an answer in your mind? In my mind? Yeah. Yes. Very interesting. Well, I can't thank you enough for this. It's definitely a great education for me, who clearly has no idea about fashion, but I I really appreciate (laughs) learning so much from you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.